Hello everyone. On July 29th, 2011, the ASL community lost a valued member as Ian Daglish passed away in a plane accident. We were very honored to speak to Ian just one day before his tragic accident, and uh, it was the first time that we'd ever spoke to him. And we are very privileged and honored to present to you right now that interview. It's good to be talking to you. Uh, it's a long time since I was last in Chicago, but uh, I, the last time I was there, I found myself after uh, a week's business uh, with a weekend to kill before my flight back on Monday. But fortunately, I had the, uh, the old annual with me with the non-coms of Company A, if you remember that far back. And uh, there were a couple of Chicago names, so I got on the telephone book from my hotel, and uh, before the weekend was out, I was enjoying ASL with Rob Benosik and Scott Holst. We know them. Those? You know them. How's Rob these days? I've heard from Scott recently, but not Rob. I think Rob is now in Ohio. But we saw oh, him. right. We did see him at a tournament last okay. year. So. Okay. Right. Hey, I have to say, guys, I enjoyed uh, number 53. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Very good indeed. Just one thing uh, I'd like to pick up. You were talking about half-tracks, of course, and uh, you rightly said that um, normally uh, half-track crews and passengers button up and see together. But there are exceptions to that. Has anybody come back to you on that one? No. Our listenership kind of just lets our stuff go by. (laughs) (laughs) So we would like you to do that. Have a look in ASL Journal issue five if you've still got that one. Uh, I didn't I do. in that because I'd, I'd asked, uh, I put a questionnaire around at one of the conferences in England, and about um, how you indicated when, for example, the vehicle crew were pinned and the squad wasn't, or the squad was broken and the crew were still CE, and everybody thought they knew the answer, but everybody had it differently. So uh, I wrote the piece for, um, it's, in, um, it's in the Journal 5, so uh, I suggest people go back to that rather than me, because uh, frankly, without the article in front of you, it's very difficult to describe. But I'll, I'll put a test to you. Now then, you, you were doing some Q&A. Here's one for you. You talked about when a buttoned-up passenger is vulnerable to fire from a higher level. Yes. What other occasion is a buttoned-up passenger still liable to fire? When they stick their heads up too high? No. No. When they're going through the drive through window, it turns out that the, the guy at McDonald's is a Nazi. Uh, different time period. Right. Uh, the inherent okay, well, what if they're in a sunken road? That would be a different uh, elevation. No. Inherent crew and passengers in an open-top AFE are vulnerable to TPBF, triple-point blank fire. Oh, yes, Even, yes. Oh. yes no, that, yeah, that is true. It, it kind of represents yeah. like uh, hand grenades being thrown in or something. That's it. Grenades. You got yes. it. You got okay. it. You got it. You got it. Oh, and just one other thing. Uh, before you start asking me questions. In 53, somebody was mentioning uh, your dog in minefields, a dog called Winston? Yes, Jeff's yes. dog. That's Jeff's dog. Ah, right, okay. That reminded me of something, and uh, I went back through my files, and I found, I'll just read this very briefly. It's an extract from a British uh, war diary from the war dog school during the Second World War. Okay. Number one dog platoon was first tested on a live German field and results were very poor. Only 50% of the mines were detected, and the trial culminated in an accident to the platoon commander on an undetected mine. It is understood that this was the first occasion during this training the dogs had been used over live mines. Consequently, the handlers were very nervous and were restraining the dogs and were over-prodding. It appears doubtful whether handlers will ever be found who have sufficient faith in their dogs to advance, possibly over anti-personnel mines, without being nervous and communicating their nerves to the dogs so it looks if it doesn't work wow 
I can well. understand that. ASL. So, ASL. Well, <laughs> or we, we could talk to you as an author. Well, yes, yeah. The two very much go together. For many years, I was interested in all periods of military history, and really, the Second World War was not that great an interest to me. And, and really, it's ASL that first got me into it, it has to be said. And uh, for a historian who is interested in the tactical level of combat, you can imagine how I felt when Squad Leader first came along. I immediately thought, wow, this is a good system. It's got its flaws. Uh, some of them were quite serious flaws, but it really appealed to me down at the tactical level. As an author... I, I don't like books that simply talk about armies and corps and divisions and just illustrate rectangular blocks moving across a map. I think people want to know about what happens at the ground level. So instead of starting the history at the top level and working down, I always like to start at the bottom level, tell people, try and show people what combat was like at the squad level or the, the troop of tanks level, and then once they've got that understanding, build it up from there. So that was, I mean, for me, squad leader was a revelation. Then, of course, in 1984, when ASL came along, and heavens, we'd, we'd played so many war games over the years, and they all had flaws, but never, ever had a war game after four or five years of testing in the, in the marketplace been converted into a loosely full-color rule book. I mean, you know, that was just mind-blowing, and uh, I've, I've been in love with ASL ever since. But unfortunately, like most ASL players, I'm sure you guys can sympathize uh, with a rule book that size, you really don't, you can't afford to play anything else because uh, if I start getting rusty with ASL, then it's a hard job to get back into it. Yeah, that's true. I, it is true. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. true. But most but I, people, I mean, a lot of people don't mind. They, the ASL is engrossing enough oh, that they don't want to play anything else. Absolutely, absolutely. But you, you, wrote, a, you wrote your thesis in college at Cambridge yep. on uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah, you see, in those days, I was interested in, uh, well, Napoleonic warfare. The, any wargaming I did was, uh, was that period, until I realized that it wasn't the scale I was interested in. I mean, the, the main unit of maneuver in that time was a whole battalion, where I'm right. much more interested in low-level tactics, and uh, you know, hence, again, my interest in uh, ASL, which, okay, uh, uh, an ASL scenario is usually at the company or maybe battalion level, but you're dealing with the squads and the individual tanks, which I just find, uh, well, I think we all do. We, we find we can empathize with that much better than you know, anonymous big divisions and corps and that sort of thing, which are just units on the map. I mean, without naming, naming the game, I can think of various war games published in the past where, let's take a, a game on the Battle of Stalingrad, where you've got a beautiful full-color map and you're moving lovely blue and red pieces across it. And then as you're playing it, you think, I have no feeling for what's going on here. And you contrast that with Red Barricades, which just looks like Dante's Inferno. And, you know, you really have the feeling that something's going on. Okay, it may not be the full experience of war, but it's, it's, clo- it's as close as we're going to get without actually, you know what they say, going out in the yard and sit, digging a hole and sitting in it for a week and having somebody hit you over the head with a saucepan once every now and then. I mean, uh, that's, that's going to ridiculous levels. But, but for me, ASL has the flavor of war. And, and things happen in ASL scenarios and you think, yeah, I remember about something like that happening. Somebody going berserk or, or uh, you know, a sniper being, uh, being encountered. And, you know, the, the odd events that happen in ASL beyond the player's control. And, and so often they, that, that chimes with something that you remember from history. Yeah, so ASL is not one of those games where you can take the mechanic of it and lift it off and put it in a different point in history. 
Because uh, it just wouldn't work. Is, is that right? Uh, that's, the, that's an interesting... I think, I think you're probably right. Obviously, as you know, MMP are looking at the Korean War at the moment. And I was once uh, challenged to try and develop ASL for the First World War. Uh, and I have to admit, I found that I was having to make such changes to the basic system to make it work for me. And for example, um, I, I felt for the First World War that I needed infantry counter that had a, a, a fire factor, but also a, close com- a separate close combat factor, because so often the things were different. And then also I found that for the First World War, the ASL level of play really uh, wasn't that interesting because the, that war was so dominated by artillery and you know, large unit actions. So I, I think, I, on balance, I agree with you that uh, ASL as a system works perfectly for, well, should we say, Spanish Civil War up to uh, 1945. Whether you can take it beyond that, well, that's up to the guys who are developing the Korean War system. We shall see. Yeah, we shall see. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to bet that they can, from what I've read about a lot of the accounts of battles for these hills, you know, and things like that, that seem to me to be like, a lot like scenarios. But I, I think they will. Uh, I, I guess I have two major concerns. I haven't been involved in it personally, or some of my friends have. Uh, on the one hand, and this is a general comment I have about ASL, I really object to unnecessary proliferation of terrain types, because I think we've got almost enough. I mean, Bocage, I think, was necessary for one unique type of terrain in Normandy. But other things, I mean, for example, I don't want to criticise individuals, but I always thought that half orchards were unnecessary. That's half just orchards? Beef, right? The ones we had. Oh, you haven't played Pegasus Bridge, have you? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave played it long ago when he yeah. was young. Yeah. I mean, if I look at real examples of, of roads in France with just one row of trees along it, I mean, that's not really a hindrance at all. It's nothing like uh, a full-blown... Normandy apple orchard, you know, it's completely different. Uh, but anyway, uh, Korea, my other concern about Korea is rather like what I was saying about the First World War. Most of my knowledge of Korea, it seems to be big battles in open terrain, you know, mass waves of Chinese charging up a bare hillside. And I wonder if ASL is the right scale for that. But, you know, again, we'll, we shall see. I wish the guys well, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what they make of it. Yeah. I was reading on, um, on the Daglish family uh, blog spot about you a little bit. Uh-huh. And, um, it said that you know that you had studied at Trinity, and 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 then afterwards, fifteen years later, I'll just read this. It said a chance purchase in a California supermarket of a paperback about American paratroops, of yes. 1944, sowed the first seeds of Ian's interest in Normandy. I'm wondering what that book was. Yes, yes. That was SLA Marshall's classic book, Night Drop. I don't know if that got a mention in uh, your 53 episode, but um, no, it yes. Didn't. Uh, S.L.A. Marshall, he was one of the uh, official U.S. historians uh, during the war who interviewed the combat troops very soon after. And um, I carried that book around with me on business trips for about a year and got more and more interested in the story of the 82nd All-American and the 101 Screaming Eagles dropping into Normandy on that night of, uh, well, the early morning of the 6th of June. And eventually it led to me, to cut a long story short, visiting the scenes. And on my second or third journey there. I mean, that was my first proper reconnaissance, not just a family, family uh, vacation, but going there for a couple of days of, of solid reconnaissance, walking the ground. Uh, <laughs> I, actually, I actually had a car with an open top roof, and I rigged a, a tripod with a, an old camcorder, and I drove along the roads at a constant speed so that I'd know exactly the layout of the place for designing an ASL map. Um, so by, even by that time, the, um, writing the historical articles and designing the ASL scenarios were going hand in hand. So yeah, my, my, first, um, my first real venture into serious 
historical articles on the Second World War and uh, serious ASL scenario design was uh, to, to do with the 82nd All-American. And, uh, and I have to say, um, to anybody list- visiting Normandy, if you want to see an interesting battlefield, don't go to St. Mary because there was virtually no fighting there. Travel a couple of miles to the west, a little place called La Fierre, uh, on the Merdre River. That's where I took a party of people just two weeks ago. To really, again, a small-scale action where you really get the feel. You're standing the field where the machine guns were mounted, looking at the causeway with the German, the German tanks and infantry trying to get across. And you, you, know, you really get the feel of what happened there. And uh, taking people to a place like that, you know, they, they really understand the battle, I think, a lot better than if you're just uh, trying to tell them about the broad campaign. You get it down to the personal level. Similarly, just a week ago, I was with uh, families of two Third Royal Tank Regiment officers in Normandy, both of them deceased, but both of them very well known, um, Johnny Langdon and Freddie Dingwall, uh, officers of Third Royal Tanks. And I was able to take the family to uh, the very spot where uh, Johnny Langdon's tank was brewed up, just outside the village of Brow on the Burgibus Ridge. And the the feeling for them of standing on the spot where his tank was destroyed, he he survived, incidentally, and for me, the reward of actually taking them there, you know, it's, it's getting things down to that ASL sort of scale that uh, really brings the war home to people. Now, are there scenarios that are, take place at that first place you mentioned? Yeah, that, um, that was actually the first, uh, first modular scenario that Critical Hit ever published. Um, I prepared some material which I was going to give to um, Philippe Lenard's ASL News, it was really prompted partly by Kavutu Tamambogo, uh, the idea of you know, a little, well, a map composed of overlays, if you remember. Then ASL News, uh, Philippe produced that map. It was an extension of Kampfgruppe Piper. He produced in the magazine uh, an ASL-sized map of Stumont Station with the scenario to go with it. And I thought, well, if he can produce that, he can do a map for me of that place, Lafayette. Um, but in the end, we decided that it was a bigger project than uh, maybe ASL News could handle. So I put the bundle of scenarios and the sketch map in the, in the mail to uh, Critical Hit. And they immediately said, right, we'll publish this. That was, that was their first ever module, which I, fo- I followed up with two other modules uh, featuring 82nd All-American. And then, as you may remember, we did the two modules with the, the British in the Oden Valley, the... Uh, Scotland, the Brave sets. And that, of course, remember, at a time when ASL was going through a difficult period, there was no obvious publisher to go to, and MMP you know, hadn't really come on the scene. And it was only sometime after that, of course, that MMP really got up and running, and, and the whole thing got reinvigorated, and we knew there was going to be a future for ASL. Yeah, so and I had fallen behind on the critical hit. I had the original magazines and scenarios up to, like, maybe 100 or something, and at some point, I got a little overwhelmed and kind of decided, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I would would not buy everything they made. And then I started buying Kinetic Energy and Heat of Battle. And then at some point, I said, I'm even not going to do third parties much at all. And then now I'm kind of getting back into everything, even though the production coming out at MMP can be overwhelming on in its own right. Yeah. So yeah. there's just so much great stuff. And I did not know that you had done the, that work for Critical Hit. So yeah. was it, that some of your first published scenarios then? Yeah, well, my first published scenarios were uh, actually in ASL News for Philippe Lenard back in 1994. Um, again, that was a result of uh, walking over a battlefield in Normandy and um, seeing a, a British action. In fact, two actions, British actions, that had taken place in the same 
location within 24 hours. So uh, I, I sent two scenarios based on that off to ASL News, which uh, immediately, they not only published, but made them the feature of their quarterly wargaming meeting on a Saturday, which used to happen in Brussels. And uh, I, I really enjoyed myself in those days, going across to Brussels every, every three, three months to meet all the guys over there. A wonderful crowd. But going back to what you're saying about the third-party people, I mean, generally, all those guys, I mean, the ones who are, who've fallen by the wayside and the ones who are still going, I mean, they did keep the torch alive while we were waiting for MMP to really you know, start firing in all cylinders. And uh, all credit to them for what they did. And uh, if, uh, if you were to ask me for my favorite all-time scenarios... Most of them would be MMP, but you know, there's one or two that I'd still say uh, come from uh, the third-party people. Yes, and, I, and, I, and yeah, and again, it's just amazing to uh, Jeff and I how people can be so productive. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. It's just, everywhere is just it's just it just was fantastic to. And as you said, yeah. it was a real dead period there for a while. I used to actually yeah. get get to play scenarios three or four times in the early years. Yeah, and now I like, don't play any of them twice because there's just so much more to do. Ah, uh, uh, well, uh, I'm I'm different actually. I I find that I don't get a chance to play that much. Most of my literally most of my ASL time is designing rather than designing and playtesting rather than playing for fun. But if I find a scenario I really like, I'll play it two or three times before I move on to something else. And uh, you know, just to take one example. Uh, non-MMP scenario, one that in recent years I've really, really enjoyed, and that is uh, Schwerpunkt, uh, number 163. Have you ever come across the first to Fastoff? No. Right. Two boards, German-Russian, just the size I like if I've got, you know, a time for a good scenario, medium size, plenty of toys on both sides. Very interesting situation. The German starts having to fall back to his defensive line before the Russian comes on the board. So lots of motion, lots of action. I believe, I haven't looked at Raw recently, but uh, as I say, first to Fastov, very well balanced. Uh, maybe slightly on the large size for a tournament scenario, but it's manageable as a tournament scenario. Very highly recommended. Yeah. So I have a question, as this has always been fascinating to me, is um, how you balance when you're going to do a scenario. How do you balance historical accuracy of the action that you're basing the scenario on oh, versus yeah. scenario balance? Because obviously, yeah. you know, all of those actions weren't balanced yeah. when that they is, actually occurred. That is, that is such a good question. And I have to put my hand in my heart and confess that <laughs> when I'm designing a, a scenario, I, I, I generally have the, the history in mind before I have the, uh, the balance. I suspect but, that, yeah, of you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because all my scenarios are unbalanced dogs, aren't they? No, 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 no. Because of your <laughs> no, no, no. because of your obvious, you know, passion about the history. history. Yeah. Seriously, I I believe that if you manipulate the victory conditions cleverly enough, you can achieve both historical, well, I mean, a reasonable level of historical accuracy and a reasonable level of balance. Well, I, never I think if you that. Yeah. if you tweak the VCs. I mean, you were talking in the, the last issue about, you know, victory conditions and could you kill all the enemy and, and still not win, you know. I mean, clever victory conditions can, can achieve the desired result, I do believe. Uh, another thing about balance, I mean, well, you've heard it so many times, haven't you? Playtest, playtest, playtest. You know, if, if, I, if I submit a scenario that's been playtested you know, a number of times, it may well be that a different group of guys will find a flaw in it that nobody else has found because we all, you know, have our own little groups that we play with, and um, or bigger groups. And you, you, 
play against a different group, as you know, and you find different rules interpretations, different tricks. So, uh, and and another, another of my personal rules when I'm putting a scenario out for playtesting, I don't just look for the most experienced players because a scenario that can be really well balanced amongst two brilliant players may be an unbalanced dog between two guys who you know, may be a bit newer to the game. So I, I like to see how people approach the game, both as well, a scenario, both as really ex- highly experienced players and as less experienced players, because after all, there's, there's probably a lot more less experienced players than, than we sometimes give credit for. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Again, a good player is going to remember his smoke. He's going to remember everything, and and then yeah, you have guys playing without doing that well. They're they're not going to come up with the same. Um, That's uh, right. Win ratio. And of, course, and of course, what what we look for is number one. Uh, we don't want anybody to discover a trick that will put a lock on the scenario. And, and similar to that, uh, you don't really want a scenario that's got only one way of playing it, you know, that's got a perfect plan. You want a scenario that nobody can quite find the perfect approach to. There's always that question mark, maybe if they did it a little bit differently, which is why, you know, when I find a good scenario that somebody else's, I want to come back to it, try it again, try it again. I have a rating system when I play a scenario because I've got a lousy memory. I make a little note about the scenario. Um, I indicate how much fun it was, and as a separate thing, I indicate its replay replay value. And I think they're they're two separate things. It could be a brilliant scenario, but I may not want to play it again. If I enjoyed it, but that's it. But if I play it, that, yeah, I enjoyed that scenario. But hey, what if I did it slightly differently? Or what if the opponent had done this? Or oh, I'd like to try it the other way round. So I bet I could do better than he did. You know, that for me is a really good sign if a scenario has that that that. It gives you that desire to want to come back to it. Yeah, I agree. If I if there's a scenario where it's obvious there's only one way to win, mm. I'm actually not as interested in that. Yeah, absolutely right. And I, I don't like to read, um, just personally, I don't like to read about a scenario before I play it. A lot of people will go research it and read if there were articles written on it or, or whatever. But Oh, about the play rather than history. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I do agree with that. That's right. That's right. And again, uh, without naming names, I mean, some people go to a tournament and they practice and practice and practice the scenarios they know are going to be played. Um, personally, I, I don't often have the time to do that, but I I enjoy the the initial challenge rather than you know, as I say, going along with the perfect plan already written out. And uh, uh, anyway, there you go. It's a, it's a game. It's a game, and all said and done. Yeah, I think uh, uh, several people that we know the tournament do do like to play them all at least once before they go. And um, now I had a question about um, determining balance provisions. Typically, I look at the balance provisions and I kind of think, well, you know, if I had that leader, he would have been killed anyway, you know, by a sniper or something. But they they seem minor. But do you put much effort into that, or is it kind of a or is there a trick to determining the balance provisions in a scenario? That is a good question. My general feeling is that I think a lot of balance provisions. In fact, I was saying this to Sean Carter as we were playing a scenario last night. I think a lot of balance provisions are frankly so weak they're hardly worth bothering with. Uh, some of them are, are more pokey, more powerful. I've, I've never really played the Australian system, you know, with all the different levels of balance. Yeah, that one, you can uh, get some big changes. Yeah. yeah um, some, some of the... Yeah, balance. But no, oh, well, I, I, uh, I tend to make balance provisions a bit stronger than other people, and sometimes uh, 
MMP, I think it's fair to say, have turned down some of my balance provisions. Um, they, I mean, they have their own thoughts on balance. For example, as you probably know, uh, MMP don't like balance provisions, which are just a mirror image of each other. Uh, they like different uh, different uh, things. So, uh, which is great, which is fine. Uh, but ge- generally, I think if I'm, I like my balance provisions to be fairly strong, so that if people really feel that um, for them the balance isn't working, or if 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 one player or if both players feel strongly they want the same side, then I think um, I like to put in balance provisions that are a bit stronger than you sometimes find. Jeff and I have been playing through the scenario pack AP4, which has ah. lots of your scenarios in there. Yes, yes. And we played Lesson for Lair. I'm not sure if Jeff remembers that one now. But we had a question, how, how did the German win in that one? Oh, really? Well, not That's that it's unbalanced, but this is the one that has. We only played it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have to aggressively move? This is where the Americans are... Holding a little, um, let's see, the German. Oh no, I, I, I yep. Sorry, you're, you're you're describing obviously for the listeners because I'm very familiar with it. I, I, <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, the Germans win a game in by controlling greater than or equal to seven billion locations on board fifty-four. Yeah, yeah. And I was the American, and do the German need to be really aggressive in the first part of that to knock out? Because there's a lot of American reinforcements. Yes, they do. They need to seize ground and hold it because initially the Americans are fairly weak, so the Germans need to get in there as quick as they can. Okay, that's what I was suspecting. Had we replayed it and switched sides, that I would have to be a much more aggressive. And part of the feel, you know, with these yeah. scenarios with the hedgerows, it really breaks the board into these little, like, areas that sometimes become independent of each other. Well, that's exactly what uh, what really happened, of course, and that's the whole reason why we have the different rules for the bocage, which I know some people have some difficulty with, but uh, I think especially with the the clarifications we got with AP4, that bocage can work well, it can make for a very interesting uh, experience, and it it does get us closer to uh, to what really happened. But Noah, that scenario, it has been a particular favorite of mine all through the development, and um, it, it didn't need. It's one of those. It didn't make, need too many tweaks. You know, I find 50% of the scenarios I design seem to sail through with hardly any changes at all, and 50% of them are really hard work. You know, you have to tweak one way, tweak another way, change this, change that, to achieve the the end result. I mean, we um, we're having that at the moment with a, a set of scenarios that I've submitted to MMP. One of them in particular, it's just been such a dream. Almost from the first layout, it just seemed to work. It's a set of three Italian scenarios, and I've got some Italian playtesters who are just madly in love with them. Uh, but this one in particular, just uh, it, it worked brilliantly. Whereas the others, they're more complicated uh, in design terms, and they're just taking you know, that bit longer to, uh, to work through. Yeah, and um, on, also on Lesson for Lair, though, you, you put a... Victory condition down there is special scenario rule four. Mm. Do you remember that? I'm looking at it now, yeah. The, the Germans, to, to control a building, uh, there's got to be a continuous path of road hexes leading up to it. And again, that's, that's a bit of history. You know, that's, uh, the Germans would have needed the supply line running to the, the places they'd captured on this, at this particular uh, place. Uh, so that was trying to give a bit of a historical feel to an action that actually happened. Now, I have to confess... As sometimes does happen in ASL, uh, this is a slightly scaled-down version of the real action. 
You know, we're, we're, in reality, we'd be looking at more than five German half-tracks and, and two armoured cars in the lead. And, but, so you can, you can regard it, if you will, as, uh, uh, as a, a small part of the bigger battle, or if you prefer, as, as a scaled-down version of the big battle. But, but for me, having visited the ground, having read extensively about the actions from both sides, the Americans and the German, it seems to encapsulate what was really happening. The Germans were plunging forward, but then they risked being surrounded by the Americans. So, and that's why they have to try and keep that line of communication open behind them, to, which adds to the problem. But then they, they get some pretty decent reinforcements coming in to, to help keep those lines open. Yeah, so, and Jeff hates wordy victory conditions, so it was nice to, <laughs> that you stuck it down there as a special rule. Uh, yeah, I know I'm people young. People have difficulty with uh, some... I, you have to be very careful with victory conditions because it's so easy to phrase them in a way that people may not understand. I think that's one particular area where it's important to get feedback from playtesters. You know, did you understand this? Explain to me your, your interpretation of the victory conditions. And if necessary, then you, know, you have to rephrase them in a simpler way. And, and again, as we were saying about, about uh, VCs, as well as... Uh, using them to achieve the historical result, there's usually a way to express them in a, a way that people will understand, you know, to, so they're not overly complex. They don't need to be overly complex. Well, and yeah. you've got to do it. You've got to fit it on a piece of eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Do you ever find that challenging? That you've there got, is that as I well. Mean, I feel like those people where their scenarios spill over onto page two, it's like they... <laughs> they're like they... Monster games do yeah, that. Well, because... They get the booby prize because they couldn't fit it all on yeah. one page. I mean, that must be challenging in itself, I would think. I've, I've two answers to that. Uh, the first <laughs> answer is that uh, I've, I've submitted to LMP a set of, of three scenarios covering uh, the, Mort- the German Nortown offensive of August 44. And one of those, putting four half-boards together, it ju- the terrain just looks like the town of Mortown and the hills above it and the river below it. I mean... The, Four ASL half boards just fit it perfectly, but it has to spill over the two boards. It's a big scenario. Now, I said that my second answer is my first words of advice to somebody designing scenario for the first time is don't make it too big and don't have too many special rules. Because, you know, we've all done it. We start designing scenarios. That, hey, let's put 20 tanks on this side. Let's put 30 tanks on that side. It doesn't work normally. It, it, hard, big scenarios are harder to design to, uh, hard to design well. And with, as far as special rules are concerned, so often, if you really ask yourself, do we need that special rule? Is it really important? If we took it out, would the game be the worst for it? And so often, you have to think, well, we can do without it. You know, maybe the, what it adds in history isn't really worth the complication of play. So you know, really come down hard on SSRs. Uh, challenge yourself a design, as a designer, should it be in there or not? Now, having said that, somebody will probably point to one of my scenarios and say, oh, that was a self-indulgent thing to put in, wasn't it? And I'll probably have some excellent defense for why I did yeah. that. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, and, of course, the trouble is sometimes uh, a few years after a scenario is submitted, it gets published, and then a few years after that, people come back to you and say, why did you put that rule in? <laughs> God, I can't remember. But... Uh, no, I mean, looking at, looking at some of them, um, the head of the mace from that same pack, people have said, well, why do Polish vehicles have to roll for fuel? To-? Oh, you actually played this one, didn't you, in one of your recent um, issues, I remember. Yes, we, I, uh, yeah. I was pleased to actually hear it. Yeah, Jeff beat me. Um, but, uh, you know, people say, why do the Polish vehicles have to roll for fuel shortage? Well, 
really that was an important part of the battle. And yes, it, it anchors them in place. It stops them being as mobile as they might have been otherwise. But that, I felt, was just essential for the, uh, for the flavor of the episode. Oh, and one other thing I'll say about that, which is interesting, I think, for ASL, that was not by any means the first scenario to feature that event. I mean, certainly Schwerpunkt um, did a scenario a few years before on that same theme. But a very, very different take. I mean, in some ways, uh, a scenario is, is history, it's game, but it's also a work of art. And two different designers can have a completely different take on, on a scenario. I, uh, one of the few scenarios I've recently given to anybody other than MMP, I gave to um, Xavier for Frank Tureur, who was based on uh, French action in 1940. And only after I'd given it to him, did I realise they'd already published a scenario on that same event, and yet it looked so different, and they were, they were so intrigued by the fact there were two different takes on that same event. They got a third designer to do a third design on that, and after the three were published together, I then realised that way back in, in the days of Backlash, somebody else had done a scenario on that same thing, and they were all completely different gaming experiences. You know, it depends on what the, scenario, what the designer wants to bring out, what highlights from the scenario he wants to, uh, to focus on. So you know, there's, there's, when, when ASL has covered every single action of the Second World War, there'll still be place, time place for more scenarios. Oh, sure. Yeah. We, we can go on forever. You know, you've got a lot of fans of your scenarios here. Have any of them ever, you know, on this side of the big pond, have anybody ever come over and uh, taken a tour with you? Right. Uh, not not uh, in Normandy, no. Most of the tours I've done so far have been for, uh, for British people. Uh, in ASL terms, I've had a few visitors. Jim Starler came over last November. He was most welcome. I gave him a quick tour of, uh, of England in the few days he was with us, and we played some ASL together. Uh, and he told me about some of his um, very, very interesting plans for ASL. No, any, anybody else who, uh, certainly anybody wants to, to look at Normandy, I'm only too glad to, uh, to take people around if they want to get in touch with me. We'd see what we can work out. Do you run tours, like, like those tours I see advertised in Military History Magazine? Or? Um, I, I, I am not a travel agent, uh, but if people are organizing a tour anyway and want a professional guide, then yes, I'll, I'll be their guide. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to organize... Well, I can recommend on hotels and things like that, but I, I'm, I'm not a travel agency, if you see what I mean. I'm, I'm the, the historian who will lead people around and show them. Uh, like, the, well, for example, the, um, the last tour I did, just for... It was actually the smallest tour I've ever done, just for nine members of those two families of the um, Third Royal Tanks officers. And I was able to take them to places where their fathers had fought, uh, give them both sides of the action, you know, stand them stand them where the action had taken place and, and point out exactly where the, you know, the small units have been engaged. And it's, it's, it's very rewarding for me as it is for them. Uh, you can imagine I very much enjoy doing that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I, 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 yes, I do it professionally. Um, can we jump to uh, what future things for ASL? Right, okay, yes. Um, work in progress. As I say, I've submitted to MMP uh, a set of three scenarios covering the German Mortan counteroffensive against the Americans. Um, there's a set submitted of three Italian scenarios. Quite interesting. Uh, uh, it's an Italian unit who, in the course of three scenarios, they, they fight the Germans as Italian paratroops. Then the next year, they fight the Germans as partisans. And the next year, they fight the Germans uh, equipped as British paratroops, the same guys. 
As you probably are aware, I'm working on <laughs> it's a project I've been working on for 30 years, would you believe, uh, on uh, Operation Sea Lion and the German invasion of England. Yes, yes. and I've heard of that. Oh, yes. oh good, good, good. Um, and I, I, you probably were aware that uh, some of those scenarios were tested out at Winter Offensive last year. Um, and I know there was some controversy about whether it was appropriate to uh, have a hypothetical scenario. MMP have resisted up to now, but Perry very kindly agreed to go with uh, this one, seeing as it, there was so much history involved. And as I said, if you look at A25.4, it actually says that green British cons- uh, conscripts in hypothetical scenarios depicting the British Home Guard. Yes, it does so, say uh, that. You're right. It I does do say that. that. Yeah, so that's part of my justification. Um, and that's going to be an interesting one. There's some very, very interesting new weapons. I'm even hoping that will be a First World War tank in one of the scenarios. Oh, yeah, that would be hanging around the whole mile there. Yeah. Northover Project, uh, the Smith gun, which uh, you had to turn on one side before you could fire it. Um, and I actually saw one in the museum near... The Smith gun is a remarkable thing. The British Army wouldn't touch it, but the Home Guard thought it was wonderful. It had huge disc wheels, and when you towed it in position, you turned it onto its side so that one wheel became the base and the other became the roof. Um, but, yeah, there's lots of interesting counters um, to, uh, in, to join the, uh, the Sea Lion set. Um, and just lastly, last time I was in Normandy, I discovered a, a little village where a whole company of uh, the 507 American Parachute Infantry Regiment was surrounded by Germans, and uh, that looks to me as if it has the makings of a, uh, a mini-campaign game. And I want it to be a simple sort of entry-level campaign game for people oh, who maybe haven't played one before. Uh, so that's, that's got lots of possibilities. But that's for, for the future anyway. There's lots of stuff bubbling along, and... Um, Looking forward to, uh, to getting it out there. But uh, meanwhile, guys, well, thank you very much for, uh, for the interview. It's been great talking to you. And, uh, you know, there's lots more to talk about if ever you, uh, you want to come back with any more questions. Now, now that, now we, that we've, we've, uh, we do, yes. Now that we've got your number, we may be calling you uh, more. We'd like to call you more often and check in, you know, occasionally. And uh, now that we know how to do it, I don't know what the technical difficulty is on this because we could, we could talk for hours. Yeah, See, I want to ask you about some of the pictures on your website, especially the one where you're holding the Panzer Shrek. I think that's what that <laughs> is, yeah? That's in the, uh, the British Army Small Arms School at Warminster. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. 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 And, and we, we have two goals now. We want to have our Ken Smith use us as uh, his models for one of his covers for the journals. Yeah. And our other goal be to get out to Normandy with you as our guide. Oh, I, I look forward to that enormously, guys. And you can uh, autograph our copy of the upcoming Operation Epsom, which is coming out very shortly. Uh, it should be in the States by now. It's oh. the book I'm very, very proud of. It's the book I've been wanting to write for ages, and uh, it, it came out absolutely wonderfully. It's full of small-scale ASL-level Tactical engagements. Uh, some of them covered already in scenarios in Scotland, the Brave, but there's plenty of room for more scenarios. Uh, no Mercy in Bercy, which was in the, uh, the last journal, was uh, one of the actions covered in that book. But uh, photos and army maps of where it actually took place, that's where to look. So, yeah, big plug for um, Over the Battlefield Operation Epson. Yeah, we'll put a link to that and your other books uh, on our website and post it with this show and we thank you very very much for staying up late and talking with us yes thank you god bless guys great to talk to you i look forward to uh, to uh, hearing the episode and talking to you in the future all right thanks take care ian thanks good night bye-bye
We'd like to extend our condolences once again to uh, Ian Daglish's family and friends. And Ian, we just want to thank you for the contribution you made to our lives. Again, don't know where, don't know where, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. He's smiling through, just like you always do. We still got each other. Hello. Yeah. We kind of fade out. Hello. Ian. Again.